Antarctica is the highest, driest, coldest, windiest, and emptiest continent on Earth. Every year, more than 400 scientists venture there to study everything from astronomy to microbiology. But they can't do it alone. It takes a small army of support staff to keep them all safe and fully operational. The Antarctic Sun podcast is a behind-the-scenes look at what it takes for the National Science Foundation to maintain the research stations and vessels that support ongoing science in the harshest continent at the bottom of the planet. This episode, the search and rescue team. In our last podcast, we took a look at the field support and training team. Their field safety coordinators train researchers and support staff that are traveling to potentially hazardous areas and often accompany them in the field to keep them safe. But occasionally something does go wrong, and the search and rescue team, or SAR, has to be called out. It's rare that this happens, but they're always ready to go and respond to a wide range of possible incidents and emergencies. Megan Walker, the field area manager, explains. We've launched them for um, things that simple broken bones in the dry valleys and things like that, just for a quicker response and ability to get in a difficult location with a helicopter things that don't require that high-level technical skill, but still you need to know that you have a field-savvy individual on that that is familiar with the terrain and location. It's their job to be ready to deploy to the site of an accident and rescue anyone in trouble, wherever it happens, whether it's a minor issue or a major disaster. Ben Adkison, the field training supervisor, gave me an idea of some of the things the team is ready to respond to. So some of the major accidents that we could have here and have had, um, aviation accidents, or people falling down a slope or in a crevasse. Those are those are the probably the three most likely incidents besides a lost vehicle in a whiteout. In the event of an emergency, time is of the essence. So we need to be able to leave McMurdo fairly quickly and get to a site to get down or up to a person and then get them to a vehicle or an aircraft to get them back to the hospital here in McMurdo as quick as possible. To help the team quickly mobilize, They've created numerous emergency plans and procedures so they can minimize the amount of time needed to strategize their responses. The SAR team has um, very detailed response plans for multitudes of situations. Like if it is a crevasse crevasse incident, we know exactly what we need to extract somebody regardless of what's going on. It's It's a clear thing to pull. Anything that's happening with a loss of structure or a severe weather event would be more challenging. But we have all of those pre-planned out, so it's a quick pull sheet, reevaluate what the situation is, and go. Now that being said, even with all of this pre-planning, every situation is unique. And it's vital that the team is able to quickly adapt one of these plans to whatever the situation is on the ground, especially if it's changing. And the key to doing that on the fly is keeping their rescue skills sharp. All the field safety coordinators and myself are part of that, the USAP SAR team. We also have a separate SAR supervisor, John Loomis. Everyone knows, knows him as Lumi. So he coordinates all that. He organizes the weekly trainings. So once a week, we'll do a big group training with the field safety coordinators and the auxiliary SAR team, which are skilled community members that we bring in and other departments graciously let us use, use their staff for one day of the week or every other week. So we train with them. That way we have a bigger pool of people to, to choose from if an event were to happen. Because there's such a wide range of possible emergencies that can happen, the team has to stay up on a number of different rescue techniques and equipment. It depends on the weather. We'll save medical trainings and then some other technical trainings for indoor days when the weather's too bad to go outside. But a lot of our outdoor days, we focus on pulley systems to lower and raise a litter and an attendant or two attendants on that litter, depending on the situation. 
A litter, also known as a rescue basket, is a kind of stretcher for remote areas, and it's one of the most important tools for transporting an injured person to safety. We'll also do some deeper field training locations where the helicopter is going to drop us off on top of a mountain or on top of a glacier with the litter, with a dummy in that litter, or we'll use one of the SAR participants to be the patient, and we'll lower that litter down a couple thousand feet, and the helicopter will pick us up down at the bottom. It's a lot to remember, so training is key. Most of these skills, they're not like riding a bike. If you haven't set up a three-to-one mechanical advantage system in two years, you probably won't remember how to do it. So it's important to keep these skills fresh. And under the pressure of an actual rescue, you need to be able to do this without thinking. I caught up with John Loomis, or Lumi, the SAR supervisor, at a training session at McMurdo Station's crevasse simulator. It's where the SAR team can safely practice the rope and rescue techniques needed in the event that someone falls into a crevasse. Homie down there has a uh, harness on. Okay. So this is what you're going to crawl him with. All right? Uh -huh. You get down there, just tie an overhand knot in your rope, clip that into it, and clip that to his harness. Okay. Got it? Into which rope? The, the rope, rope that you're going to be going, going on. Just down grab on. it below you uh -huh. and just put an overhand knot in it uh -huh. and then clip that and clip it in the dummy. I asked him to give me an idea of the scope of equipment that the team might need in an emergency. Uh, that can be ropes, uh, technical climbing gear. Uh, we have um, impact hammer um, drills that we can use to open up crevasses. It might be ground penetrating radar, um, sleds, litters. It's the medical gear. Uh, other times, you know, we actually might have to go out and establish a full camp before we even go to the site because it's remote and we have to be able to take care of the rescue personnel first before going. We need to have a place where we can be safe versus be on a scene that's uncontrolled. So it, it can go all the way up to a simple pan and a stove to full tents, generators, you name it. And again, accidents requiring the SAR team to deploy are rare. This is in large part because of the hard work the field support and training team has been doing for a long time to make safety out in the field the top priority. We keep track of everything that's happened since the early 70s and what we've been responding to and what we've stood up for. And we have various pie charts and graph charts and plot charts of where things are trending. Um, and we've moved away from lots of crevasse-related incidents to more weather-related incidents, which I think is a testament to the program's risk management and also our knowledge of working in Antarctica. Uh, if you look at a historical perspective, uh, starting from the 50s, 60s, 70s, there were a lot more SAR callouts back then than there are now. And there was a lot more SAR deployments back then than there are now. And that can be attributed to, one, uh, we have a lot more technology. We have a lot more resources that we can actually look at weather events. For example, weather is a huge thing. You know, a lot of SAR call-outs was because people got trapped on the, on the shelf ice when, there was, when a storm came in. Uh, we have a very good warning of that. Uh, the gear is a lot more dependable. Um, there's a lot better communication system. There's a lot more of accountability uh, and a safety net there for everyone. So usually if something goes on right now, it's usually because of the fact it's... Um, you know, we've had a mechanical failure or something along those lines, or a standard operating procedure, some type of procedure wasn't being followed, or, you know, there's also just plain acts of God, you know, things that we cannot prepare for, and something occurred. So it doesn't happen very often anymore. Um, but on average, I'd say we have a full call out once or twice a season. And in the last five or six years, we've had maybe one deployment each year. 
Learning from the past and sharing that knowledge broadly is the key to preventing potential emergencies. Prior to any groups going out in the deep field, we sit down with them uh, and we go through their entire plan, what their travel plans are, what the route photos look like, what their day in the life is, how, what type of gear they're carrying. We actually go through all that with them. It's about an hour, hour and a half session. And at that time, we can provide objective uh, criticism or uh, suggestions to them. And that right there has really gotten some good feedback saying, hey, you know, this really helped because we didn't think about this part or we didn't know that this gear was available, which is going to make our life easier or safer. The most important first step in addressing any emergency situation is information gathering. Antarctica is full of many types of hazards, and different circumstances require different tools and techniques to respond. The initial portion is, uh, all that, a lot of that is done before we even leave McMurdo. Um, we have to look at the situation as reported, gather as much data as we can, and granted, you know, to respond, we want to respond as fast as possible, but you don't want to respond blindly, if you will, which gets yourself in a situation you're not prepared for. So one of my responsibilities as a supervisor is to collect the data as is being gathered, ask the proper and per pertinent questions, and try to get as much information as we can to fill in those voids. Then after that, you look at the peer personnel available, and you already have an idea of what skill sets are going to be required for that region, and then you match the two. It's not just Lumi and the SAR team that are involved. An emergency response involves people from across nearly all departments working together to coordinate the response from the station's emergency operations center. When a call comes in over the radio, there's a whole series of established actions that need to be done and decisions to be made to deploy the SAR team safely and effectively. What's going to happen is there's going to be an EOC, it's called the Emergency Operations Center. It's a core group of individuals uh, uh, which is comprised of senior management that are going to get together and they actually start getting the initial information then. The call comes in, MACOP sends out to the core, the core team, the core arrives in the EOC room, uh, the core's five individuals, and we'll get a brief from MACOPs on what the situation is. Not every EOC core call is going to involve a search and rescue situation. You know, it can be, well, we had a fuel spill, or there could be an alarm going off in the structure. It doesn't necessarily mean it's um, SAR-related. But as this information's coming in, it's rapidly determined whether this is going to be a search and rescue call out or not. And then from that point on, we work really collectively within the EOC um, as far as where we're going and, and getting direction from the EOC director, which is always the NSF station manager, providing him with our recommendations and our suggestions going forward. Uh, at that time, I would be um, either instructed to perform a full recall of the search and rescue members or I would recommend to the EOC core staff that we put either the SAR team on a standby or recall so we can start pre-planning. On any given day, we have four people on a emergency response stance, if you will, uh, with pagers, and that is usually two folks from the primary team and two folks from the auxiliary team. Once we have everyone in, they are briefed. There's always a designated team leader that is going to basically deploy with that team. They are briefed on the situation. We do some preliminary planning before, they even, before the team even arrives. Then after that, the team leader will start basically developing a plan of action on how he wants to respond and what gear might be necessary. All of these decisions have to happen fast because in an emergency, every second counts, especially in the harsh environments of Antarctica. The big problem with any type of rescue, especially in this environment, nothing is nearby for the most part. You know. Uh, 
we might be able to respond close in with a vehicle, which that means that gear is, un, un, uh, is, there's no limit on gear because you don't have a weight restriction. But if we're flying to an area with a helicopter or a fixed wing aircraft, now you have to look, start balancing the gear that we're bringing, our required survival gear, and the aircraft uh, uh, cargo limitations. You know, they're balancing how much the aircraft weighs versus fuel, and all that has changed. So now you really start looking at, okay, well, the aircraft is telling me that for them to go from here to that point and return safely, they need to have this much fuel, which means that we only have this amount of cargo space or cargo weight allowed, and that includes personnel. Fast distances and inclement weather are two of the biggest obstacles preventing the SAR team from reaching someone in distress quickly. It's why safety and rescue skills are taught to everybody going into potentially hazardous areas. You know, we have some field camps that are extremely far away from McMurdo. It's going to take us hours, if not days, to respond because of either weather or the distances involved. So every member in this community, science group, whatever, share responsibility for search and rescue to some degree, either by through prevention or we will give these different groups out in the field uh, training to where they can effect their own rescue if possible. Uh, if something bad happens, like they go into crevasse, they just can't sit there and wait for us. Um, you know, SAR is a, a program-wide mandate, if you will, and it doesn't have to be designated people that are doing it. It's anyone in this program that's going out in the field or even working here locally can be considered part of that uh, effort. So it's a holistic effort throughout the entire community. It's this kind of comprehensive approach to field safety and the focus on prevention that has helped make working amongst the hazards of Antarctica so manageable. But the potential for accidents remains, so the SAR team is always ready to deploy at a moment's notice, whenever and wherever they're needed. That's all for this edition of the Antarctic Sun podcast, and stay tuned for more. I'll be bringing you more behind-the-scenes looks at how the National Science Foundation gets science done at the bottom of the world. And check out our website at antarcticsun.usap.gov for more news and science from the frozen continent. Thanks for listening.